Well, I hope, Markham, can you grab a copy of the scriptures, open it with me to Acts chapter 3. Today we're going to consider Acts chapter 3, verse uh, 1 to verse 26. Before I do, a couple updates uh, that I'd love to give you. Uh, it's a couple months away from now, but now is the time for us to start planning for Hope Summer Kids Camp. I love Hope Summer Kids Camp. Of all of the activities uh, that we do each year, it's in like the top five for sure favorite things that uh, I love our church has the opportunity to do. It's a five-day day camp from July 13th to 17th, and uh, we want to invite you to take the opportunity to be able to serve at this camp. If you have time between July 13th to 17th, um, you, and you want to help, you're not sure how to help, or you, you wonder what ways you can help, Gail and Mayletter, Director of Children's Ministry, is in the foyer after the service. Go up to the entrance of Hope Kids. You'll see her there at a pedestal, and she can tell you how you can get involved. Uh, next Sunday, also, I want to personally invite you to come to our prayer meeting. We have a uh, prayer meeting next Sunday at 6 p.m., um, and it's about how we can grow in the future in what's next for our church. We are praying right now, the elders and the staff for our church, that we would be a people who are devoted to prayer, empowered by the Spirit, and devo- devoted to prayer. And as a people empowered by the Spirit and devoted to prayer, we're praying that we would be bold witnesses for the gospel and merciful neighbors to those around us. So grateful for all the things we've been able to do in bold witnessing, like church planting and going across the world, supporting other church plants. And But there are a lot of uh, needs here in our backyard. Uh, The Apostle Paul, when he went out to plant churches, was told by Peter, remember the poor. And Paul said it was the thing he was eager to do. Uh, We've hired uh, a new staff member, Mihir Sirkar, who oversees integration and outreach. Integration exists. Outreach is a new ministry. We want to know how. How can we be merciful to the vulnerable and needy in our neighborhood? We don't know how. So we need to come together to pray. I'm inviting each of you to come next Sunday, 6 p.m. Are we eager to prayer? Do we have the heart to do it? Do we know what to do? Come, come next Sunday, 6 p.m. All right, we're now into the sermon. Acts chapter 3, verse 1 to verse 26. A name is a good thing. A good name is a good thing. A good name is more valuable than a good salary. A good name carries your reputation. When you think, and when you hear these names, what do you think about these people? Think about this in your own mind. What do you think about when you hear the name Don Cherry? Jennifer Lopez? Meghan Markle? Kobe Bryant, Donald Trump. A name is a reputation. It represents who you are based on how you live. What do you think comes to mind to our culture outside of the church when they hear the name of Jesus? You hear it a lot in a lot of different places. I hear the name of Jesus more time in one hour at the gym where I work out than I think you hear it in some churches. In the overuse of it in some places and the underuse of it in other places, 
neither really honors the name of Jesus as it should be honored. To us who know the way Jesus lived, we know that the name of Jesus is a good name that deserves respect. The name of Jesus represents who he is and how he lived. It represents his deep mercy, his uncompromising justice, his unwavering love, his liberating truth, his perfect integrity. But I think one of the reasons that we don't give the name of Jesus the respect that it's due is because there's a gap between our generation and the first generation who saw how Jesus lived and heard what he taught. A gap of 20 centuries. This passage today demonstrates to us what the first followers of Jesus who heard his voice and saw how he lived with their own eyes and their own ears, this passage shows us what they thought about the name of Jesus and what they believed then is still true now. The name of Jesus is a good name. It's a great name, and it's a powerful name. The name of Jesus is the power of God to ignite a movement that renews a culture and rejuvenates its people. That's what God can do now. That's what God wants to do in you and through you. The name of Jesus is the power of God that ignites a movement to renew the culture and rejuvenate its people. Our goal today is to understand from Acts chapter 3 through the miracle of how Peter heals a disabled man in the name of Jesus. Our goal is to understand how this renewal happens and what rejuvenation looks like. Sam read the first part of our passage while we were singing, so let's read the next part of our passage, and would you stand with me as we do so? Acts chapter 3, verse 11 to verse 16. This is God's word. It speaks to us today, and this is what it says. Verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John and all the people, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and by his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. You can be seated, church. The name of Jesus is the power of God that ignites a movement to renew a culture and rejuvenate its people. That was happening in the first century. A real social movement was igniting in the new community of believers. It was a grassroots movement. It was expanding. It started with 120, but it grew to over 3,000. 
thousand. And as Daniel showed us last week from Acts 2, verse 42 to 47, this new social movement, this new community of believers was characterized by true devotion to God. True devotion to God as they were devoted to the apostles' teaching about the life of Jesus. And, and as a result of that, they were connected in generous relationships together. They had an awe and a wonder for God, and they kept on expanding. This first church had a unique community, but not an exclusive community. It was not integrated from the culture. Or excuse me, it was not segregated from the culture. It was integrated into the culture. We see that in the way that Peter and John were still participating in the prayer services with people who hadn't yet believed in Jesus. Verse 1, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms, to ask charity, of those entering the table. So on their way to this prayer service, Peter and John came across a disabled beggar at one of the most extra extravagant parts of the temple called the beautiful gate. I don't know if you've been traveling maybe to a big city like New York City or something like that, but in big cities, tourists can go on these bus tours and they take you to um, see uh, well-known landmarks, that places that you want to get a selfie with the post online. And if we were going on a, a bus tour of ancient Israel, the beautiful gate is definitely a place where you'd want to stop and get a selfie. It was a, not just a door into the temple, it was the architectural structure around the door that was so extravagant. 75 feet high, 60 feet wide, a towering structure. And around the door in this 75 by 60 feet structure, there's this beautiful ornate design that was overlaid with one of the most expensive, sought after, and rare precious metals of the day, um, Corinthian bronze. A good place for a beggar to sit because there's a lot of foot traffic, but also a place where it's understandable if he might have been overlooked with his poverty being overshadowed with such luxury. He was 40 years old. He had likely been there every working day since he became an adult. Peter and John might have even seen him previously when they went to the temple while Jesus was still with them. But when other people might have overlooked him in the shadow of luxury, Peter and John didn't overlook him. They locked eyes with him. And they offered him more than money. Look at verse 5. Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And the people who saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. They offered him more than money. They offered him healing in Jesus' name. Remember, the name of Jesus is the reputation of Jesus. It's not, a, it's not a coupon code 
which is the way a lot of people treat the name of Jesus, who believe in the name of Jesus today. If I want this thing, so I go to check it out with God, and I put in the right characters during the right marketing time, then I get the discount and get the thing I got from my want. That's not the name of Jesus. It's not a coupon code, a magic spell. The name of Jesus is the reputation of Jesus. It represents who he is and how he lived. Jesus, when he lived on earth, had such a heart for the poor and for vulnerable and for minorities. Jesus, when he lived on earth, had the power to heal the sick. And the apostles, they shared his heart. And they were uniquely gifted by the Holy Spirit with his healing power. So, Peter reached down and grasped his hand. But God reached further and grasped his heart. And this man believed in Jesus. And by faith in the name of Jesus, the power of God immediately healed him. Immediately he was healed. Enthusiastically he entered the temple. Legs leaping with joy. Heart leaping with worship for the God who healed him. The movement was expanding. And it was expanding to the lowly. It was expanding to the vulnerable. See, this is how the power of God in the name of Jesus renews the culture. The power of God in the name of Jesus can renew a culture by treating the vulnerable with mercy. If we represent the name of Jesus, we need to have the same heart for Jesus. And the same heart he had for the vulnerable and the needy. And when I look at our community around us, when I look at Markham and South Unionville, it may be hidden behind the walls of our suburban life, but the need is great. In Markham, there's a lot of elder abuse. There's a lot of discrimination towards immigrants. There's prescription drug and opioid addiction that is just avoided. Did you know York Region is the hub of human trafficking in Canada? There's a lot of youth homelessness. You just don't see them because they're couch surfing in their friends' basements. There's a lot of children that are neglected. And there's people right across the street like this from us. And I wonder what I need to do more to be able to reach my neighbors. I wonder what we can do individually and organizationally. That's why I'm inviting you to prioritize attending our prayer meeting next Sunday. I want to have the heart of Jesus. I don't want it just to be a coupon code. I want to really represent his name. The need is great. Our time and our resources are few, so we need to gather to ask for God's direction. Who? Who are the needy in South Unionville? What is the need? How can we mercifully provide not only for the needs of the body, but reach deeper and provide for the needs of the soul? When the church shows mercy in the name of Jesus, it's an example to the culture about the heart of Christ. It's not only an example that renews the culture, but it also rejuvenates the individuals within this culture. Because Peter wasn't just virtue signaling, he was actually helping a specific individual. When this weary beggar received the mercy of God in the name of Jesus, he received more than just healing. If what you want from God, if your bar is just heal me, 
Give me my physical needs. Your bar is too low. He wasn't, I believe, he wasn't just healed. He wasn't just restored to his healing. He was restored to his humanity. I believe in the name of Jesus, he finally found more than just healing. He finally found a sense of humanity and personal dignity that he had not had for his entire life. He was finally living. See, by the power of the name of Jesus, individuals are rejuvenated and the weary in the name of Jesus find dignity. How? Without a sense of personal agency, like I have the ability to live my life the way I want, and without a sense of personal identity, like I know my meaning for life, and I know I have a sense of belonging in life, without those things, we don't have dignity. And for a Jew in the first century, their identity and sense of meaning and sense of belonging was directly connected with the religious activity that happened in the temple. Their identity was uniquely tied directly to the temple. It defined their place as a part of the chosen people of God. It defined who they were as a nation. In the temple was the place where the law of Moses was read and the prophets. In the the temple was the place where the presence of God dwelt and they could connect with their maker. It was the place where they had community and fellowship with one another so that they had a sense of belonging. They had agency to live their life. They had meaning. They had belonging. But sorrowfully, this man, while he stood outside the temple for his whole life, never once stepped inside of it. Not because he was physically unable, but because he was ritually unclean. It's not like it is now, because Jesus fulfilled the law, but the Jews, according to the law, if you had a disability like this, you were disqualified from entering the presence of God. He couldn't. He had no sense of agency. He had no sense of meaning. He had no sense of belonging. He lived his whole life disconnected from God, disconnected from community, and disconnected from a sense of dignity and humanity. Can you imagine the weariness that he would have felt? It was customary in the Jewish culture that you got to go to the temple for the first time when you were 12 years old. We learned that from the life of Jesus in Luke 2. He was 40. For nearly three decades, how many tens of thousands of 12-year-old boys did he watch take a step into the temple that he could never take? How many other people did he see enjoying what he could never enjoy? But Jesus fulfilled the law. Even if you don't have perfect health, all that the law required was fulfilled in Christ. Jesus said that he is greater than the temple. Jesus himself is the presence of God here on earth. And if you believe in Jesus, the word of God says that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit and now God dwells in you. See, When Peter reached out his hand to this disabled beggar and showed mercy in Jesus' name, he wasn't just offering to restore him to full health. 
He was offering to store him, restore him to his full humanity and true dignity that he had never experienced for his whole life. Finally, decades of immobility, and he took his first step, not just off the ground and onto his feet, but out of despair and into dignity. This is the power of the name of Jesus. And maybe you feel weary today. Maybe to the rest of the world, you look like the envy that they could never have. You are built up like the beautiful gate. Maybe that's what you look like in the outside, but maybe inside you know that you're just a, you're just a disabled beggar longing for some mercy, longing for some agency, longing for some meaning, longing to belong. Is that how you feel today? I can tell you our world is craving it. This is the power of the name of Jesus. It restored his humanity and his dignity, and it can do the same for you. You see, God created us in his own image. What it means to be a human is to live in harmony with our creator, but strive and strive as much as we want. Our true humanity is impaired because of sin. And we are all unclean because of sin. We're disqualified from enjoying the harmony that defines our humanity. Sin is the choice that all of us have made, myself included, to turn away from following the good way that our creator defined for us to live and to follow our own way. Sin makes us unclean. Sin paralyzes us from true meaning, true belonging, and it makes us feel worthless and lonely. Do you feel it? There's good news. Jesus, the true human, son of God, son of man, came to earth and showed us what true humanity is. Even though he had nothing, he was filled with everything. He lived a perfectly clean life, perfectly pure life, completely and always connected with his father in community with others except when he died on the cross. When he died on the cross, he allowed himself to be stained with our sin. He allowed himself to be stained with your sin. He became unclean. He became impure. So that by faith in his name, you would be washed clean. You would be clothed in his purity. And by faith in him alone, that's the only way to be restored to your God and live as the human he created you to be. And there, that's where you have a sense of meaning. When you're restored into harmony with your creator, that's where you have a sense of belonging because you were adopted into a new spiritual family. And we have relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And even though we still act in ways where we stain our relationships with our own sin, we can see our love cover a multitude of sins because Christ covered our sins. Praise God, there is good news. The name of Jesus is able to do this for you. 
the aching that you feel is the brokenness of your soul, not just your body. If, if your bar is healing, your bar is too low, you can have true humanity and full dignity by faith in Jesus' name. Believe in him. Faith is transferring your trust away from the things that you think will give you security and stability and reward and investing your trust into what's truly secure and what will really yield wealth and riches. That's faith in the name of Jesus. Put your faith in his name. A life lived in the dignity of the name of Jesus, man, that's compelling. It's magnetic. Other people are going to want that. It was to everyone who saw the beggar healed. They, they saw this man who they had passed by and maybe given like a coin or two here or there, but they saw him, the one who was for years at the gate, now, now not outside but inside with them, and they're wondering how has this happened, and Peter tells them it's the name of Jesus that did this. Verse 16 and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you now see and know. The faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Peter was more than interested in just giving them validation for how this miracle happened. He wanted to give them hope. And actually, he kind of hijacks the prayer service. Thousands of people go into the temple for this prayer service led by the priest who would probably read the law and lead them in corporate praying and they would recite the psalms together. But as soon as Peter heals this guy, now they're like, they, he, he hijacks the whole service and gives his own sermon. And he brings up something that was kind of dicey. He reminds them of their baggage about Jesus. He gives them a specific moment to show them that there's power in the name of Jesus, but they already rejected it. Because you see, this crowd is the same crowd that was at the balcony where they saw the governor, Roman governor Pilate, trying Jesus to see whether he deserved death. And they were the crowd that lifted up their fists and raised their voices and said, crucify him. Pilate didn't want to. Because he saw that Jesus was innocent. They saw that it was pure and clean. And so Pilate gave them an option because he wanted to wipe his hands of this Jesus guy and then appease the Jews. So he said, all right, you pick. You pick. Do you want me to release Jesus, whom Peter calls the author of life? Or do you want me to release this other guy, a real criminal named Barabbas, who's a murderer and actually guilty of taking life? And the Jews ignorantly following the jealous rage of the religious elites called out for him to be killed. Peter holds them completely guilty and fully accountable. Not only that, but he also shows them you're not only guilty for killing Jesus, you're guilty for betraying your own identity. You're guilty for betraying your own heritage. In the next text, part of the text, he gives them a little rundown of some of their history that they would have been aware of to show them how they, were, they just weren't even true to who they really, really are themselves. Look at verse 22. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. 
And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him proclaim these days, You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God has made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, In you, or offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Peter holds them fully accountable and guilty for the death of Jesus and shows them you betrayed your own heritage. He brings up three names that they would have been familiar with. Moses, Samuel, Abraham. If these were like heroes to the Jews. So renowned, so popular, so, such good reputation in their name that if they had paper money and coins like us, they probably would have stamped their face on their paper money and coins. Moses, the, the insecure guy with a stutter in his speech whom God gave the power and the boldness to stand up to a tyrant and deliver the people of God out of slavery and into the promised land. Samuel, a young man, a young man who grew up in a time of wretched religious and political corruption. But even though he stood under the leadership of men double and triple his age who were corrupt, he stood against their corruption and brought real reform. Abraham, a model of true faith who struggled to believe at first, but then when God proved his word true, his faith was so firm that he was willing to give up everything and would not compromise his faith one inch. And Peter was reminding them that though these people were heroes of your faith and heroes of your heritage, all of your ancestors knew that they were waiting for another hero who would be the hero of heroes, who would fulfill everything that came before them. He came and you killed him. They were guilty for killing the author of life. They were guilty for betraying their own heritage. But at the same time, he didn't condemn them. He was sympathetic to them. Look at verse 17. And now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance. He called them brothers. They killed his savior, and they call, he called them brothers. He said, I know you acted ignorantly. He wasn't judgmental or condemning. He was sympathetic. The name of Jesus is the power of God to ignite a movement that renews a culture and rejuvenates its people. And Peter's sympathy towards people who are clearly guilty gives us an example of how we should interact with the people in our culture. In Jesus' name, the trends of our culture should be critiqued. They should, but they should be critiqued with sympathy. If we're going to give hope to the world, we need to be able to speak the truth, but speak it in love. It's pretty clear to the world and to Christians that the church and the world see life differently. But the trends of our culture deserve are, and should be critiqued with sympathy. But I wonder, how should we look at the differences that we have with our world? And man, there are a lot of differences. A few that I can think of, a few trends that are very clearly contradictory to God's word. I think about abuse of alcohol and prescription drugs. I think about the way that 
Hindu meditation practices are being taught to kindergartners in our public school system. I think about evolving sexuality and gender spectrum. I think about abortion and assisted dying. It's pretty clear that we think about the world differently than unchurched people do. How should we think about these differences? Are they obstacles or are they opportunities? Some of us treat the differences we have with unchurched people like a virus. That what you believe is so different that it's toxic. And I want nothing to do with you because you'll infect me too and my have let my kids have nothing to do with you because you'll infect my kids. Is, is that the way that we should look at our differences? On a lighter note, some of us look at our differences with the world like it's an optical illusion. Do you remember this picture that was floating around social media a couple of years ago? This, it was actually five years ago now. The, this picture was posted online, and it was a weird optical illusion based on the way the lighting hit this dress. Some people saw the dress as uh, white and gold. Some people saw it as uh, blue and black. What it actually was doesn't matter. What was hilarious is how angry people got at each other because they saw it differently than them. And if you read the comments online, it was just like they were dividing themselves into two warring nations and there was like this nuclear war of opinion going on. But it was just an optical illusion. Can, but that's, that's how we often interact with unchurched people. I, you don't see this the way that I do and I am angry at you because of it. Can you, can you blame a blind person for stepping on your foot? Other people, I'd say, I would say that I would, uh, I would suggest that we look at our differences differently. I would suggest that we see our differences like, um, like a shaky bridge, like a shaky bridge over a deep valley. It's clear that if I walk over this thing to get to you on the other side, we're clearly on different sides, and if I try and walk over this thing to have a civil conversation with you, it's going to be dicey. It's going to be shaky. But I was once on that side. And now I see that the oasis on this side. And I only got over here because someone reached out to me and pulled me over. And you're created in the image of God like I'm created in the image of God. And I was only brought to the side because of God's grace. So if you're willing, I can guide you over here. That's what Peter did. He sympathetically understood it from their side of things and he guided them to a different way, which is a better way and the only way. But you might think it's like, no, 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 no. These things, these differences are too big, too great. The gap is too wide. You don't know. Do you actually know what they're doing? Do you actually know what they did? They killed Jesus. The trends of our culture need to be critiqued with sympathy. Nothing's free from criticism, not, openly our, not even our own faith. The good news for Christians is that our faith has stood firm without shaking for 20 centuries. I want to try and give you a brief example of how we can critique trends with sympathy. I think of one trend that's gen, uh, prevalent, prevalent in my generation. Uh, people call it hookup culture. 
Young people are less and less interested in getting married, settling down, and having kids. But they want romance. So the romantic life is purely physical and only casual without any commitments. We should look at things like this critically. God's word says that marriage, according to his design, one person for life should be honored. But I think there's a way we can look at this sympathetically. Because see, generations after generations have made a promise that has never come true. Generations after generations have told their young people the promise that if you get, you can, if you get the trophy spouse with a suburban home, two and a half kids, a dog, with a cute white picket fence, you can have a perfect life. Your bingo card is scratched off and you win. The divorce rates have told young generations something different. Yeah, they've told us that that promise is a lie and they don't want anything with it. So I can sympathize that people still want romance. They just don't want the baggage of commitment that comes with it. But the reality is hookup culture is a lie too. Romance and love that's built on the casual and the physical isn't love at all. It's selfishness. And it ends up using the other person and just as quickly discarding the other person as an object rather than an individual created in God's image. Real sustained romantic love isn't an unattainable goal. There's a different way. It's a better way. And it's the only way. And the example of Jesus Christ shows us that way. See, the fear of a committed relationship is that even if everything is crumbling inside, I just need to put on a good face. Everything's okay. Even though I know I'm going to go home after work today, I'm definitely going to have a fight and an argument again with my spouse. And my kids are going to hide up in my room, their room because they don't want anything to be with me. But I'm okay. Yes, successful marriages don't need to do that. Successful romantic relationships don't hide their fears and wrongs. They willingly expose their own sins to each other. And they graciously show love to each other because they've first been shown grace through Jesus Christ. Successful relationships are built on the grace of the gospel. You see how sympathy creates a truly ungodly trend to become an opportunity and not an obstacle? And you see how the gospel makes it a path to love and not a path of judgment. Let's stop standing at an arm's length from our world and start living with arms open. In the name of Jesus, the trends of our culture can be critiqued with sympathy. And in this way, the power of the name of Jesus offers hope to apathetic people. In the power of the name of Jesus, apathetic people aimlessly following the trends of the world can finally find hope. Look at the hope that Peter offered them in verse 19. He says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The name of Jesus offers the hope of peace. By faith in Jesus' name, your sins will be blotted out. The wrong that you've done from apathetically following the way of the culture has alienated you from God and stained your soul. But the author of life 
was, became impure and unclean so that by faith in his name you should be, can be washed clean. When we change our mind and transfer our trust, we'll be brought back into harmony with him again. And when we live in harmony with God, we have peace. The name of Jesus offers the hope of peace. It offer, also offers the hope of rest. Look at the text, verse 20. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Verse 20, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Man, who needs some refreshment? When people ask me recently, how are you? Like you, I probably, you probably say the same thing as me. I'm busy and I'm tired. And I am tired. <laughs> Life is tiring. Life is busy. But by God's grace, though my body is tired, God gives life to my soul and rest to my soul. And my generation, especially, and all generations, we're just tired people and burnt out. I think that celebrities often are caricatures of the larger culture. Like, they're just blown up versions of themselves, and they're popular because they resonate with the heart of the culture. There's one really popular artist celebrity who has a lot of tattoos, and he has two tattoos under his two eyes. The two tattoos say, always tired. And that kind of represents how my generation feels today. Yeah, there's good news, though. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, Come, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. You may not know how to put it into words but that you know in reality the tiredness you feel isn't just a body tired, it's a soul tired. And when we are reunited to God in harmony with him, we have rest for our souls. And one day we will have the hope of full restoration. When all things that bring hopelessness and strife and restlessness to the world will be gone. Because when Jesus comes back, he will make all things new. The name of Jesus is the power of God to renew a culture and to rejuvenate its people. But in order to find it, you have a choice to make. Where will you deposit your trust? You want a sense of security. You want what you trust in to yield some reward. Stop putting your trust in your own way. Stop putting your trust in the trends of the culture. Transfer your trust out of that account and deposit it in the name of Jesus. And you will be able to represent his name to a world so, and see others renewed and you will be rejuvenated in your own heart. You will not be weary. You will have dignity in true humanity. You will not be hopeless. You will have peace and rest. The way of Jesus is a different way. But it's a better way. And when you deposit your trust there, you'll know it's the only way. So church, stop living with two bank accounts. Put everything in Jesus' name. Live by faith in his name.
The name of Jesus is a good name. It represents his deep mercy, his uncompromising justice, his perfect integrity, his liberating truth, his unwavering love. The name of Jesus is the power of God that can ignite a movement that renews the culture and rejuvenates its people. The same power then is the power we have now. Put your faith in the name of Jesus and you will see God's power rejuvenate you. Would you stand with me now as we pray? Father in heaven, thank you for your deep love towards us. You are holy and you are awesome and you are mighty. And we don't deserve to be welcomed into relationship with you. But you graciously have. Thank you, Lord. Father, would you inspire us again to trust in the good name of Jesus, that it's a great name and it's a powerful name. And would you help us to fully deposit all of our faith in there, not to hold back any of our trust or any of our faith in our own way or in the world's way, but to fully and totally deposit all of our faith into the name of Jesus. And God, I pray that you would rejuvenate the weary today. I pray that you would give hope for the apathetic today, that even though we might feel meaningless or lonely or have no sense of agency, that you would show us that we can be reunited with you. And in harmony with you, we have the dignity of true humanity. And would you, for those who are weary today, would you provoke them to change their minds? Would you provoke us to change our minds and would we find the hope of rest? Would we find the hope of peace? And would we fully believe in Jesus' name? What you've done before, Lord, please do again. In Jesus' name, amen.